Africa, rise and shine. Africa, zora. Africa, amuka na unai. Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 6145 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisolo Huko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories, in Africa rise and shine at the Sawa, East African leaders prepare to meet to discuss Burundi crisis, and UN expresses concern over security situation in Somalia. In economics, Uganda's oil rush, town stuck in the slow lane, and in sports news, South African athlete performs well at the Great Manchester Run. The first up, the news with Anne A very good morning. Liberia has been declared free of the Ebola virus by the World Health Organization. The United Nations Health Agency says 42 days have passed since the last person confirmed the infectious disease was buried on the 28th of March. At the peak of transmission during August and September last year, Liberia was reporting 300 to 400 new cases every week. Stephanie Kutrix reports. This interruption of transmission is being called a monumental achievement for a country that reported the highest number of deaths in West Africa. The UN estimates that Ebola claimed 4,353 Liberian lives. During August and September 2014, the capital city Monrovia was the setting for some of the most tragic scenes from the outbreak. But as the number of cases grew exponentially, WHO says international assistance began to pour in and all these efforts helped push the number of cases down to zero. East African leaders will hold a summit in Tanzania on Wednesday aimed at breaking the political deadlock in Burundi. Nineteen people have been killed in protests against President Pierre Nkurunziza's bid for a third term. Opponents say a third term violates the constitution and the peace deal that ended the civil war in 2005. The United States at the weekend threatened sanctions on anyone involved in violence in Burundi against those protesting against the president's bid for a third term. The U.S. also expressed alarm at the spread of weapons among youth militia loyal to Hunkurunziza. Tens of thousands of people have fled fierce fighting in South Sudan's northern unity state. The International Committee of the Red Cross and other humanitarian organizations have withdrawn staff from the area. A political crisis in South Sudan in late 2013 sparked fighting between forces loyal to President Silva Kiir and rebels allied to his former deputy, Rahik Machar. South Africa's former opposition leader, Helen Zilla, says the newly elected leaders of the Democratic Alliance Party represent her dream of a diverse leadership. The DA has a black leader for the first time after Musi Maimani was elected with an overwhelming majority at the party's elective congress over the weekend. Zilla says the new leadership will help the party grow. 
humbly grateful that I was able to fulfill the pledge that I made eight years ago when I was elected leader of the DA. Then I said that I was going to create many platforms for new leaders to emerge so that the DA leadership could reflect the South Africa we wanted to see, so that we could become the change we wanted to see in the world. And I hope that I did that. And looking at this hall today and looking at the Democratic Alliance Congress and the new diverse leadership that has emerged. And finally, South Africa's President Jacob Zuma has made an impassioned appeal for patriotism and unity among South Africans. Zuma was speaking after attending a ceremony to mark the 70th anniversary of the end of World War II at the Russian capital Moscow on Saturday. Russian President Vladimir Putin presided over a Red Square parade to celebrate the Soviet victory over Nazi Germany seven decades ago. Zuma says there are lessons to be learned from the deep sense of patriotism and national pride displayed by Russians when commemorating historic moments like the Victory Day. As we approach our Freedom Day, we ought to do the documentaries about the struggle, about what happened, how the struggle was fought, who were the heroes, and so that we remember that the freedom that we have and democracy is something that we need to defend. I think that's what the lesson you come up with from, from Russia. And the, the, the national feeling, the patriotism, it, it, it moves away the individualism and self-interest that people focus on at the expense of the national interest. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.06 Central African Time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. All regions of Somalia are high-risk environments, and there's no real safe haven anymore, according to the resident and humanitarian coordinator of the United Nations in Somalia. Felipe Lazzarini is in New York to brief the Security Council on the latest development in the Horn of Africa country. The Al-Shabaab terrorist group has created widespread insecurity in the country and recently claimed the death of four UNICEF staff members in April. Meanwhile, as of January, the UN says three million people in Somalia are in need of humanitarian assistance. Lazzarini elaborates further on this. Kenya did announce the closure of uh, the Dadaab camp uh, a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. but uh, High Commissioner Guterres is right now in uh, Nairobi, met with the president, and the Kenyan government has been quite clear that they will comply with uh, international humanitarian law, and that means uh, that uh, the refugees will not be sent back uh, against a wish, mm-hmm. but any return in country will be on a voluntary basis. Now, we have also repeatedly said, because it's not the first time that we are talking about the closure of the DAP, uh, that the conditions in Somalia are not met uh, for a massive return, because there is just no infrastructure, I mean, to host uh, all these returnees. And this is the reason why the return has to be voluntary, but the return has also to take place in a staged way and in a way that it does not undermine 
the current uh, peace and state building effort in the country. The flow of return will certainly continue, not only at the same level, possibly slightly scaled up, but not within three months. Recently, uh, the UN colleague in Somalia were under attack. How is the security now? Well, the security situation is definitely uh, worrying. I mean, the attack has taken place in Garoué, in mm -hmm. the north, uh, in a place where we considered uh, that the situation was more secure than anywhere else in the country. And this is an indication that there is no real safe haven anymore. And this is the reason why, as a United Nation, we will operate the input land the same way as in South or Central region, meaning as a high-risk environment. In their response to the massacre, Kenya bombed also two camps. Of course, the massacre of the 1 and 48 students in Garissa. How would that impact the Somalian security? There have been some military uh, operation. As you know also, I mean, uh, AMISOM is in country to uh, support uh, the Somali government uh, to recover a certain number of uh, area. Over the last uh, 18 months, there have been uh, two military offensive. There haven't been any new military offensive over the last uh, few months. And uh, we have seen that uh, during this period, there have been an increased activity of uh, Al-Shabaab in South Central, in Mogadishu, and also with the latest dramatic incident in uh, Garoui. In your talk with the Somali officials, how do you assess their resolve and capacity to deal with Al-Shabaab and other security issues? I do believe uh, the resolve uh, is uh, definitely here, mm -hmm. uh, but when we talk about the capacity, we are talking about uh, extraordinary weak institutional capacity of the Somali government, uh, not only in the security sector, but we can see this uh, weakness of the institution in uh, every area. So that's the reason why there is a need of the international community to support uh, the Somali government, even in this endeavor. We heard that uh, money transfer facility will be shut down. How would that impact the Somalian life? I mean, this is a real source of concern. 40% of the population in uh, Somalia depends completely on the remittances uh, uh, being brought through this uh, company. And uh, what we also know is that uh, the majority, if not the entirety, of the remittances uh, are used by the families, uh, mm -hmm. I mean, to access uh, to basic social services. Uh, so the shutting down of these uh, remittances, uh, the transfer of uh, this money, can only have uh, a severe negative uh, impact. Any progress on the political front and building states and institutions in Somalia? There have been quite a number of progress uh, over the last year, especially in uh, the state formation uh, process. Uh, one year ago, no one expected uh, so much progress uh, regarding the Jubaland or the uh, southwest uh, region. And today we are talking about uh, the creation of additional uh, regions. So yes, politically, there have been quite a number of progress. I want to turn on to food security. Uh, Somalia has been hit by famine years ago. The food security is precarious, basically. Now, how is it? Somalia has been hit by a devastating famine. Sure. Uh, more than 250,000 people died directly of the consequence of the famine. In addition of 250 additional people dying because uh, in this country you have the worst human development indicator. The situation remains extremely fragile. We have today people who cannot meet, uh, I mean, their daily uh, need when it comes to food. We have more than 2 million people who are teetering on the edge of uh, falling down to a similar uh, situation. 
That was Felipe Lazzarini, in the, res- the resident and humanitarian coordinator of the United Nations in Somalia, speaking to UN Radio's May Yakub. Tanzania's president has called for patience ahead of an extraordinary summit that will tackle the crisis in Burundi next week as the United States upped the ant on President Pierre Nkurunziza not to seek a third term. President Jakaya Kikwete, who chairs the East African community, is expected to receive a report at the summit from a group of foreign ministers who visited the country last week. Show and Bryce Peace reports. Tanzania's president is calling for patience ahead of the May 13th summit in Dar es Salaam. Listen to President Kikwete's remarks and my interaction with him that follows. We are going to have a summit of the Safran community to hear a report from, from, from the ministers. What they, have, what, they, what, what they gathered there, what are the proposals, and then we'll discuss as a Safran community on how to assist the people of Burundi have successful elections, and peaceful elections as well. Mr. President, what about the AU chair's uh, uh, pronouncements yesterday? I, I, I'm, I'm talking about the staffing community. Don't ask about the AU chair, okay? Security Council members were briefed in closed consultations by the UN's envoy for the Great Lakes region, Sai Jinnit, who told members conditions were not ripe for elections in Burundi. The first high-ranking UN official to agree with the sentiments expressed by AU Commission Chair Dr. Nkosizana Dlamini Zuma a day earlier. And while the council remains divided on the third-term issue, the United States has been firm that any additional presidential tenure would violate the Arusha Accord. Ambassador Samantha Power. It is clear that things are not going well in Burundi, and all of us want to learn if there was more that we could have done. But at the end of the day, President Kurenziza has to put his people first. The international community can't make him... Uh, privilege the welfare of his people, privilege the end of violence uh, over his own personal desire to seek a third term. He has to make that choice. Uh, And I think the message from the international community was loud and clear, uh, and it's a message that he has chosen not to hear. The U.S. welcomed regional interventions and fully supported the views expressed earlier by the AU Commission Chair calling for the elections to be postponed. We also welcome African Union Chairwoman Lamini Zuma's statement that Nkurunziza should not seek a third term and that what is most important at this critical time is to ensure a peaceful environment conducive to elections. The government of Burundi has a window to stop and reverse the outbreak of violence by agreeing to allow for peaceful protests easing restrictions to media, respecting human rights, and preventing violence by the Mbamakure and the security forces. Power indicated current events were due to two foreseeable and very preventable events. President Nkurunziza's decision to seek a third term despite warnings that such a move would lead to violence and his government's relentless crackdown on peaceful protesters. I'm Sherman Bricepies in New York. South African President Jacob Zuma has made an impassioned plea for patriotism and unity among South Africans. The President said this after attending the 70th anniversary of the end of World War II at the Russian capital Moscow on Saturday. Russian President Vladimir Putin presided over a Red Square parade to celebrate the Soviet victory over Nazi Germany seven decades ago. An estimated 27 million of the former Soviet Union soldiers Soldiers and civilians were killed in World War II. Tepo Ikaning reports from Moscow.
Russia pulled out all stops to stage a spectacular military parade to mark the 70th anniversary of the Soviet Union's army victory over Nazi Germany armed forces. About 16,000 troops marched in a Red Square parade along with the display of hundreds of units of Russia's newly acquired military hardware. More than 1,300 foreign troops, including Serbs, Indians and Chinese, participated in the parade. Around the city of Moscow, billboards show images of wartime commanders and joyful faces of members of the public on Victory Day. After the parade, some 165,000 people, including President Vladimir Putin, marched through central Moscow with portraits of relatives who fought in the war. It was a proud moment for Russians and an opportunity for the Kremlin to display its military might. In his Victory Day speech at the Red Square, President Putin paid tribute to the sacrifices made by Soviet troops during the World War II. The best Nazi troops were sent to Russia. Their military might was concentrated here. Decisive battles of World War II took place here. It is no surprise that it was the Red Army eventually besieged Berlin and put an end to this war with Nazi Germany. Our entire nation fought for the freedom of our land. Everybody contributed to this victory and together our people saved our homeland. President Jacob Zuma, who was amongst 25 world leaders attending the event, says there are lessons to be learned from the deep sense of patriotism and national pride displayed by Russians when commemorating historic moments like the Victory Day. The lesson, for an example, to me that was very clear is that as we approach our Freedom Day, we ought to do the documentaries about the struggle, about what happened, how the struggle was fought, who were the heroes, and so that we remember that the freedom that we have and democracy is something that we need to defend. I think that's what the lesson you come up with from, from Russia. And the national feeling, the patriotism, is one of the most important elements to determine even the development of the country. It moves away the, the individualism and self-interest that people focus on at the expense of the national interest. On domestic issues, President Zuma has told the SABC that he will in the coming few weeks release the full report of the Commission of Inquiry into the Marikana tragedy. At least 44 people were killed, while roughly 70 were injured and over 250 were arrested in the wake of strike-related unrest. The commission, chaired by retired judge Ian Fallam, was set up by President Zuma to investigate the tragic events which took place around Marikana mine in Rustenburg in the northwest province in 2012. Justice Fallon presented the inquiry's findings and recommendations to President Zuma last month. President Zuma has assured the nation that he'll soon release the Marikana report. I am looking at the report, particularly the recommendations, and in due course, once I've looked at everything, the report will be released, and then I'll, I'll, when I release the report, I'll be indicating what kind of recommendations I'm going to be uh, following, because they are very serious recommendations that are made by the report. So the report is a matter of time. I will be necessarily publishing it and indicating 
what I'm doing with the recommendations. Meanwhile, President Zuma will be back in Russia in July for the BRICS Leader Summit. Tsepo Ikaneng in Moscow, Russia. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. South Africa's main opposition party, the Democratic Alliance, begins a new era today after the overwhelming victory for Musi Maimani. He overwhelmingly beat his main opponent, Wilmot James, in the race for the party's top post. A 34-year-old pastor has called for unity following an often divisive run-up to the Federal Congress, which ended yesterday in Port Elizabeth. Musi Chimombe reports. A meteoric rise for Musi Maimani just four years after joining the democratic alliance as its mayoral candidate for johannesburg he is now its first ever black leader outgoing leader helen zilla was euphoric as she passed on the baton because we do things by the rules in the democratic alliance i have to ask the returning officers to hand me the envelope with the name of your newly elected leader in it may i have the envelope and the winner is your new leader is In his victory speech, Maimani called for unity. Thank you so much for those who voted for me. But whether or not you voted for me, let us today unite behind our shared values and take the DA forward. We are Democrats guided by our values. It is our values that unite us. And I want to tell you today, it is our values that would lead us to victory. My money has dismissed notions that is anyone's puppet. His detractors have highlighted his youth and relative inexperience. They claim they're more experienced puppet masters running the show behind the scenes. His team includes veteran leaders like Federal Council Chair James Self, and newly elected federal chair Ethel Trollope. Speaking to the SABC, Maimani dismissed these perceptions. I've got to shape this organization. I've got to be able to give my input into it. I've led in parliament. We've taken parliament. We said this is where we want to do things. And, and things go that way. We're in a global society of younger leaders. Barack Obama, David Cameron. And I think you can't use experience as the only marker for how a person must lead. Otherwise, we must say, let the most experienced lead. As it can't be. It cannot be so. Let those who lead, lead. What I bring to the DA is a leadership brand. It's a leadership brand that is different to Ellen Zilla, different to Tony Leon. And I'll certainly have to infuse that into the organization. Maimani says they're tackling the thorny issue of race, as they are often labeled by some as a party protecting white privilege. Its steady growth in black constituencies has raised questions on how its traditional support base will be affected. People in the DA used to say we have to balance the ambitions of the majority against the fears of the minority. That can't be so. Now what we've got to say is what is a values-based society look like? Who are the people who are connected with our vision and want this country to go forward? A South Africa that is inclusive, a South Africa that is non-racial, an economy that is growing, that addresses historical legacies, opportunities that are open on the basis of education for fairness, and a society that's not corrupt. To build into that, I, don't think, I think those values are shared by many other South Africans, regardless of race.
ordinary members of the Democratic Alliance believe the newly elected leadership will change people's perceptions that the party is for whites and that the new leadership will enable them to reach areas they have battled with in the past. The new leaders, we must go forward. No, no, they were saying in the future, must is a so-called white people, but they can say no. There's the, the ra- it's a rainbow nation now. No, white, black, and all the stuff. No, no, we're gonna stick. I think we're very excited to have Messi as our new leader. I think South Africa, the DA is ready for a black leader, and I think South Africa was hoping for one. And I think he's going to do great things for us. I believe that he will do wonderful things. He will be able to go to grassroots and draw in the youth that we need so desperately. Reflecting on Maimane's victory, Zilla, who had hunted him and supported his rise in the party, says the new leadership reflects her vision for diversity. Humbly grateful that I was able to fulfill the pledge that I made eight years ago when I was elected leader of the DA. Then I said that I was going to create many platforms for new leaders to emerge so that the DA leadership could reflect the South Africa we wanted to see, so that we could become the change we wanted to see in the world. And I hope that I did that. And looking at this hall today and looking at the Democratic Alliance Congress and the new diverse leadership that has emerged. Meanwhile, DA Member of Parliament, Wilmot James, was gracious in defeat. I ran a very good campaign. I raised some important issues around transparency when it comes to campaign finance and having open debates, and I'm very happy about that. I had good support. The parties decided who's the new leader, and now it's time to unite. And I will do everything in my power to unify and play a unifying role and work together and support Imusi as the new leader of the DA. Fifteen years since it was formed, the DA charts a new path, with Maimane's greatest challenge being to continue the growth trend and his biggest test will be next year's local government elections. And he has set the bar high, determined to add three more of the country's top metros under the party's leadership. He has also vowed to continue their battle for corruption charges against President Jacob Zuma to be reinstated. And that report by Busi Chimombe. Now, the Democratic Alliance DA has voted Musi Maimani as the new leader, making him the first black person to head the traditionally white party. The party hopes the move will widen its appeal in a country deeply divided along racial lines despite the fall of apartheid more than two decades ago. Maimani takes over from the DA's leader of eight years, Helen Ziller, who stepped down after leading the party to win 22% of the vote in the 2014 national election, its best performance. Our question to you today is, do you think the election of Musi Maimani will make the DA more attractive to black voters? Do you think the election of Musi Maimani will make the DA more attractive to black voters. Give us your thoughts on email at info at channelafrica.co.za. Send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905 or get a hold of us on Twitter at Rise Shine Africa or at Channel Africa 1. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
An estimated one in four violent deaths happen in 18 countries that make up only 4% of the world's population. This is according to a UN report released last week. The findings from UN development program UNDP partner The Small Arms Survey found that despite a small drop in violent deaths to 508,000, Conflict-related deaths have risen to at least 70,000 per year. The figures have been fueled by fighting in Syria and Libya, but also by drug wars in a South American triangle of Honduras, Guatemala and Venezuela. More from the Small Arms Survey's Anna Alvazi Delfrat. What we have seen is that although the overall number has decreased, we have seen an increase in the proportion of direct conflict deaths, that is, battlefield deaths. And this went up from approximately 50,000 per year that we measured in 2011 to approximately 70,000 per year that we estimate now. The trend is that Syria and the Middle East are where the bulk of the deaths are happening. Yes, no, this is the, the, the conflict-related deaths, of course. Uh, they, they, uh, they are mostly driven up by the, the conflicts in the Middle East. And we see that now, of course, uh, in this report, we couldn't uh, take into account the, the more recent developments in Iraq that, that also had an impact on the conflict in Syria. In addition to the conflict-related deaths, there are non-conflict-related deaths, and you found that Latin America, South American countries, in particular Honduras and Guatemala, are leading the spike there, despite there being no armed conflict. Yes, indeed. Uh, among the, the top-ranking uh, countries, it's only approximately one-third that is uh, directly affected by conflict, by armed conflict. In all other countries, uh, there are situations uh, that are still uh, um, involving high, high levels of violence, uh, but there is no open conflict. So this is the case, for example, of Honduras, of Venezuela, Guatemala, as you said. In general, actually, the, the northern triangle, Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, that, that is an area where we can see a concentration of violence in the coastal areas and that borders. Uh, that is practically indicating uh, the, the, uh, an active uh, trafficking and probably uh, areas for trafficking in drugs. And 25% of violent deaths occurred in 18 countries that count for only 4% of the world's population. Was that a surprising finding? Well, definitely, yes. Uh, it's, it's surprising that uh, in countries that have relatively uh, small population, you can find so many people who die violently. People in these uh, locations are at a very, very high risk, and the quality of the life, of course, is uh, deeply affected. Can you tell me something about the number of women victims of homicide and violent crime? Yes, in our estimates it's approximately 60,000 women and girls uh, who are killed uh, every year. This is a 10% decrease from our previous estimate and uh, this looks as good news, actually it is good news. What is not good news is that violence against women and killings of women happen everywhere. They are actually more evenly distributed. So it's a type of phenomenon that you can find even in uh, countries where the levels of violence are very low and the proportion of female victims is very high because of the very high proportion of domestic violence and uh, partner violence. And finally, can you give me an idea of why 
armed violence and conflict-related violence is so damaging to countries' development? What's the damage done? There are some places like uh, like Honduras, El Salvador. In, in these places, we are looking at more than 20 years you know, post-conflict. Uh, the damage that, that keeps uh, happening is very high. We have estimated the cost of non-conflict violence in 171 billion U.S. dollars. That is a huge amount of money, and actually you could see that it's the GDP of a medium, middle-level country. That was Anna Alvazi del Frati of the Small Arms Survey speaking to UN Radio's Daniel Johnson. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. Liberia has been declared free of the Ebola virus by the World Health Organization. Nearly a dozen armed groups in the Central African Republic have signed a deal to disarm and to end a conflict which has killed thousands. And East African leaders will hold a summit in Tanzania on Wednesday aimed at breaking the political deadlock in Burundi. Those are the stories making headlines. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. Let's go back in time to today in 1981. Legendary reggae artist Bob Mali dies in a Miami hospital at the age of 36. Emancipate yourselves from mental slavery None but ourselves can free our minds Have no fear for atomic energy Cause none of them can stop the time How long shall they kill our prophets While we stand aside and look Some say it's just a part of it We've got to fulfill the book Won't you help to sing These songs of freedom Cause all I ever have Redemption songs And that was Redemption Song by the legendary Bob Miley who died on this day in 1981. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Medical experts in South Africa say the concept of Ubuntu translated humanity should be applied to the ethical treatment of Ebola and other neglected tropical diseases in order to change the way African countries respond to diseases. This is one of the many issues that came out of the 5th Annual Africa Health Exhibition and Congress, which took place in Johannesburg recently. The recent Ebola epidemic in West Africa is the largest Ebola outbreak in history, having infected over 26,000 people and killing around 11,000 of those infected with the virus. For more on this, Elizabeth Mapari spoke to Professor Sylvester Chima, 
head of the Bio and Research Ethics and Medical Law Program at the University of KwaZulu-Natal and is sourced by explaining the concept of Ubuntu. The concept of Ubuntu essentially deals with the African Brotherhood. Basically what it means is that, you know, is the idea of I am because we are. So when we're talking about Ubuntu, we talk about being our brother's keeper. Now, in this context, when we extend it to the idea of Ebola and other neglected tropical diseases, what it means is that Africans must take the lead when we are talking about you know, tropical diseases that affect mostly the majority of the poor people. So we cannot continuously wait for foreign donors or you know, international organizations to take the lead when dealing with issues. And this is part of being our brother's keeper, that is, as Africans, you know, most African countries have become independent for more than some of them for more than 50 years. Therefore, it is time that organizations that actually, such as the African Union, uh, which first started, you know, a long time ago as the uh, Organization of African Unity, should start making policies that actually focus on diseases that affect the majority of African people. Professor, when we look at how Africa has responded to the current Ebola outbreak in West Africa, as well as other neglected tropical diseases, do you think that the concept of Ubuntu has been applied? Enough. No, we cannot say that. According to one of the speakers from the University of Johannesburg, who was talking about the concept of Ubuntu with regards to how we can apply to issues like Ebola and other neglected tropical diseases, one of the things that he brought up was that the African Union, for example, contributed only a meager amount of only $1 million, which compared to almost a billion that was considered by international donors. Therefore, we have, for example, in this particular case, we can say that Africa was lacking very much behind. Secondly, Africa did not declare, at least the African countries did not declare Ebola virus as an emergency, for example, for Africa some of the African countries affected, until the World Health Organization declared after almost six months after the outbreak of the disease. And this shows a delay. Now, if there has been a mechanism, for example, established by the African Union, which actually looks inwards and focuses on diseases or you know, of issues that affect African population groups, there would have been a more rapid response and probably we wouldn't have had the number of deaths that we have now. You know, we had to wait until about 1,000 people died before they actually, you know, and wait for the World Health Organization to declare an emergency before the African countries had taken it seriously. And what are some of the reasons why Africans are vulnerable to diseases like Ebola? As you well know, the, the main problem why this Ebola virus disease started was essentially a question of poverty, poor education, lack of knowledge of how to take care of infectious diseases, and all these things are what makes Africans, they are vulnerable because they are poor, they are vulnerable because they are poorly educated, they are vulnerable because there is no information that is necessary for them to be able to take it. And even basic infrastructure is not available. You know, as Ebola occurs, for example, in the background, it can easily be prevented by things like soap and water. One of the things that happen in this environment that even if you have the soap, sometimes you open a tap and there is no water to wash your hand. All of these factors, poverty, low education, lack of alternative means of obtaining health care, poor infrastructure in African countries. All of these are what makes Africans vulnerable, and this is what perpetuates the poverty and endemicity of actually these tropical diseases. A lot of questions have been asked around the Ebola virus. Questions like, did the virus receive little attention because it has affected mostly the poor? What's your take on this? Yes, that is true. The first case of Ebola, for example, was reported in Zaire as far back as 1970. Now, at that time, maybe there was no technology for, you know, investigating and finding drugs for viral disease. But when HIV AIDS came, for example, which affected more affluent population groups, whether it was in, you know, America, Europe, or elsewhere, there was a lot of attention paid and new drugs were discovered for this. But because 
diseases like Ebola only affect the poorest of the poor, for example. This is not taken proper cognizance of by the international organization. For example, the technology and the sequencing of the viral virus has been done since the 1980s. Actually, and then new drugs could have been developed. But because these are things that affect poor people, even drugs are developed, they cannot really purchase the drugs. So the international commercialized, how do I say, pharmaceutical companies do not pay attention because even when they develop the drugs, the drugs are not going to be purchased. So there is a problem in the international, you know, our international research enterprise. Because what we find out is that the majority is what we call the 90-10 anomaly or 90-10 gap in that 90% of the research funding, international research funding that's available, is actually spent on only disease that affects 10% of the population, which are the affluent, you know, minority. While the majority of people who are 90% and are poor, their diseases are neglected. Only 10% of the money that's available is actually spent on doing research in these diseases. What, in your view, Professor, needs to happen if Africa is to deal effectively with these diseases, you know, going forward? Attention brought to bear because we're not talking about things for which the medications are not available. We're talking about things like hookworm, ascariasis, which is just ordinary worms that affect people. Hookworm, for example, deals, it causes anemia. So when it causes anemia, people become debilitated. They are too weak to work, to actually go to farming because it affects farmers. So this neglected topical disease actually perpetuates the incidence of poverty because if we could actually spend a little bit of money, for example, to provide proper dewarming, for example, for school children every six months, make sure that, you know, they get clean water, make sure they get the basic necessities. Farmers, for example, can go back to work and be able to help themselves, and this will actually reduce the incidence of poverty. We need to do more research to find new and better drugs. We have to find new and better ways of distributing the drugs, even when they are available, especially in our own environment in Africa, because there are certain situations where even when international donors provide these drugs free of charge, the local authorities are not able to actually distribute it to the school children in the rural areas that actually need this medication. We have to work on several levels, develop new drugs, that's better research, use the ones that are already available to make sure that they get to the people that actually need it. And that was Professor Sylvester Chima from the University of Natal in South Africa speaking to Elizabeth Mapari. One of the most successful African music artists in the last decade, Nigerian singer Debanj, is using his star power to promote women's empowerment. A new series created by the World Bank called Hashtag Music for Dev welcomes artists from around the globe to share their music while raising awareness about development issues. Through this platform, Debange says he is dedicating his new song, Extraordinary, to all the strong and inspiring women of the world. Karina Lopez spoke with the award-winning singer. Generally, even looking from the tag, the reason why we are here, ending poverty, you know, it's such an important message. And I believe in order for us to have poverty-free world, in order for us to end poverty, we have to take care of some very key things. And last year, I was privileged to be able to be part of the people that created an awareness on agriculture as it was declared the year of agriculture. And I found out that while we did that, most of the established small-scale farmers that we have are women. Most of those that can manage things are women. So I've seen that even from my own life, if you look at my industry, you find out that it is very hard for a woman 
to succeed in where we men are. They are not seen as that. Most people just look at the body. It's been something that spoke to me a while ago, and I thought that it would be good for us to champion that move. That in order for us to eradicate poverty, we have to eradicate gender inequality. What is good for he is good for she. So you have to look beyond our body to see the extraordinary potential she possesses. What are your hopes by this time next year? Your your work with agriculture investments has done really well. I love that you use your celebrity as leverage to raise awareness, and I think that's what celebrity should be used as. Can you tell me like the progress you've made with agricultural investments thus yeah. far? Uh, first of all, I like what you said. You say we use being a celebrity to do whatsoever positive change we can. So last year, you know, working with the World Bank, we worked with one campaign, and um, the aim was to create an awareness. You know, firstly, when we did the research, when they approached me and told me, the band we want you to champion a move across Africa, I said, what are we doing? They said, it's on agriculture. I said, no, 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 no. When you hear agriculture, when I was growing up, it's like, that's like the last job you can want to do. That means it's dirty. That means it has a poor mentality behind it. And while I was in high school, I don't know, you, you people call it high school, we call it secondary school in Nigeria. While I was in secondary school, if you do something wrong, one of the fastest punishments is to send you to the farm, you know, go and clear that grass over there. So it was not something that was encouraging. It was not something that was sexy. I would say it was not something that was classy. You know, you could not think of wanting to be a, a billionaire and think of agriculture when I was growing up. But I found out that Africa possesses the biggest potential for us to not only end hunger and poverty, but we can feed the rest of the world. So with knowledge comes power. So after I got that knowledge, it was, it was important for me to pass it across. And I think we achieved that aim. Myself, um, 19 of my colleagues across Africa, we did a song together. We did a music video called Coconut Chocolate. And our aim was to get 500,000 signatories, 500,000 youths across Africa, knowing fully well that if we have 500,000 youths across Africa that sign up that, yes, do agriculture eat pays we, we saw beyond what we expected we got over two million african youths saying do i agree it pays not just that we got the african leaders they listened to us and we realized that the, we always knew the power was in our hands but with this we realized that the power was now in our hands we speak it we get it so what we wanted from it not just the two million signatories not just people financing listen let's do aggregate pays we wanted them to put some policies in place and the African Union later in the year it was done so the greatest thing we wanted was achieved the, the African leaders all agreed the presidents agreed that listen we're going to commit more of the annual budgets on agriculture we're going to do programs that will create entrepreneurs that will create youths that will make you self-made on agriculture if you're interested and from my country Nigeria they started one program called Nagropreneur and that was Nigerian singer Debant speaking to UN Radio's Karina Lope Economics update up next. Fuel shortages are set to worsen in Nigeria as international traders and local marketers back away from imports. This over fears that the cash-strapped new government will halt to costly subsidy payments. Already, lines at petrol stations in the major cities are blocking traffic as Africa's largest crude oil exporter runs out of domestic fuels. The shortage in some rural areas is even more acute due to a payment battle between independent retailers and the government. 
The Aviation Africa 2015 conference and exhibition is underway in Dubai. The conference is attended by high-level industry guests. The association exhibits uh, features up to 40 companies showcasing the latest technologies and services to help develop and invest in the future of the aviation industry in Africa. Aviation Africa 2015 provides connectivity as it's about people doing business, products moving to new markets, investment and new opportunities being discussed and discovered. The South African government will know today whether public unions have accepted an improved salary increase offer. Unions rejected a previous offer of 5.8%, but government subsequently raised its offer to 7%. Rulane Baloyi reports. The unions earlier had demanded a 10% increase. Unions also wanted 600 rand increase in their housing allowance rather than the 200 rand government was offering. COSATU-affiliated unions will engage with independent unions before their representatives meet today with state negotiators. Government and unions have been negotiating the salary increase for the last seven months. Before the discovery of large amounts of oil lake in Albert, Hoima was a forlorn and remote town in western Uganda whose main sources of income was farming and the trickle of tourists heading to nearby national parks. A decade later, an oil fueled boom is transforming the town's nearest lake with smart new office blocks and hotels drawing scores of new businesses and people from engineers to prostitutes to bankers. Copper and gold production in the Democratic Republic of Congo has risen sharply in the first quarter of this year, this despite continuing uncertainty about a proposed revision of the mining code. DRC, which vies with Zambia to be Africa's leading copper producer, mined 279,573 tons of the metal during the quarter. That was up 13.7% from 245,868 tons over the same period last year. The U.S. dollar trades at 11.90 South African rand, 9.58 Botswana Pula, 7.34 in Zambia, 0.65 British pound, 8.9 euro, gold 1.188 dollars, platinum 1.136 dollars an ounce, brand crude 6.5 dollars, 3.7 cents a barrel. That's an economic update on Channel Africa. Our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. This month has been declared We Are Africa Month with the theme Opening the Doors of Learning and Culture from Cape to Cairo. Channel Africa strongly supports the project and will keep you abreast of events. We would like to get to know you, our listener. So we are asking you to tell us the country you're in and how you listen to the station. Is it via shortwave, internet or satellite? And what do you enjoy listening to? You can SMS us at plus two seven eight two double three two five nine oh five. Or email us. It's at info at channelafrica.org. You can also tell us via Facebook or tweet us on the handle at channelafrica numerical one. Or write to us at the address PO Box 
91313 Auckland Park, Johannesburg, 2006 Republic of South Africa. We look forward to hearing from you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. In our sports update this hour, we're kicking off with football news. Bafana Bafana head coach Ifram Sheikh Mashaba has named a 22-man squad for the Kosafa Cup tournament, which runs from the 17th to the 30th of May. South Africa will face Botswana in the quarterfinal of the competition on the 24th of May at Muruleng Stadium in the northwest province of South Africa at 17.30 Central African time. 14 of the players ply their trade in the Prima Soccer League, while the rest are from the National First Division, the ABC Municipal League and Academies. There are no overseas-based players in the squad. And the South African football community has been rocked by the death of a football fan after Chippa United's 2-0 loss to Absa Premiership champions Kaiser Chiefs at Nelson Mandela Bay Stadium in Port Elizabeth, Eastern Cape Province. Police are still investigating more details about the death of this fan who is believed to be Cape Town-based fan and had come to celebrate Chiefs League triumph. According to media reports, the deceased was killed after a corpse gun went off during a scuffle between the two. The tragic incident occurred during the pitch invasion as the Premier Soccer League was preparing to hand over the trophy to Chiefs. League CEO Brand de Villiers. I just want to inform uh, the uh media um, that of the untimely death of one of the uh, spectators today. It's a sad uh, occurrence and it's a really, uh, you know, a tragic occurrence that something like that happened in a joyous day like this. So uh, currently the instance has been investigated by the police and further details will be distributed by the police in the near future. No, I mean, currently it's under investigation, as I said, uh, by the police, you know, any speculation would not be... Uh, you know, good from our side. No, it's, it was an incident uh, at, towards the end of the uh, match, after the match. It's for the second time in three weeks that the police and security personnel failed to contain pitch invasion during a PSL match. But ACBC Sport believes that this incident will not affect the staging of the Netbank Cup final between Mamelodi Sundowns and Ajax Cape Town in Port Elizabeth next weekend. And De Villas confirms. No, I mean, it's just an isolated incident and, I mean, any speculation, you know, what happened, you know, it's not, not appropriate at this point in time. On to athletics. The president of the Athletics Federation of Nigeria, AFN, Solomon Ogba, has denied as incorrect accusations and media reports that the federation is neglecting athletes based in Nigeria and supporting athletes based abroad. Ogba, who led Team Nigeria track and field athletes to win a gold medal at the IAAF World Relay in Bahamas penultimate week, says the board of AFN since its inauguration in May 2013 has done more for athletes based in Nigeria than any other federation. Ogba says though it is the responsibility of states, athletics associations and athletics clubs to organize conditioning camps and prepare athletes for a new season, AFN has taken up their responsibility to ensure their home-based athletes are in good shape for the start of each season. Ogba says the board deserves commendation rather than condemnation for the good work it has done since May 2013. And Asafa Powell 
ran the fastest 100 meter in the world this year, clocking 9.84 seconds at the Jamaica International Invitational in Kingston at the weekend. The former world record holder, who served a drug ban last year, beat American Ryan Bailey 9.93 and fellow Jamaican Nestor Carter 9.98. It was his best time in five years. And finally, with the golf news, South Africa's George Coutier has won the inaugural Afri-Asia Bank Mauritius Open after beating Denmark's Thobjen Olesen on the second playoff hole. The South African birdied the 18th hole at the Heritage Golf Club and the pair finished tied on 13 under par. Coutier lived up to his billing as the highest-ranked player in the field. Mark Tompkins report. South Africa's George Kutsia is the inaugural Afrasia Bank Mauritius Open champion after beating the Dane Tjorborn Olesen on the second playoff hole. They both finished level on 13 under par. Kutsia shot a final round 69. He needed a birdie on the last to take it into a playoff, having dropped a shot on 16. Olesen put the pressure on with a birdie of his own on 17. He finished with a round of 68, but in the end he lost out on the second playoff hole. Kutsia almost won it on the first hole with the eagle putt just rolling across the cup, but he closed it out. His second winner the year having won the Schwane Open in Pretoria just a couple of months ago. Martin Mamat finished in third place after a final round 67 and South African Thomas Aitken who'd been in the final group with his fellow countryman Kutsia had to settle for fourth place but it's Kutsia's title this first tri-sanction event between the Sunshine European and Asian Tours. He's beaten Thurborn Olesen on the second playoff hole. That's just what news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa. East African leaders prepare to meet to discuss Burundi crisis. And UN expresses concern over security situation in Somalia. That wraps up Africa, rise and shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuzora Magaza and Elizabeth Mapari, Technical producer Charles Moyo and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news, on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa is Debanj with a song titled Fall in Love. Don't get it twisted, love is a beautiful thing. It's done jazzy again! When the Coco Master fall in love, <laughs> you don't say what I don't pass, Gary. Hey! I'm in love. Are you in love? Mama, you don't make me fall in love. You don't make me fall in love. Fall in love. We so don't marry because you don't make me fall.
Mama, you don't make me fall in love. No way. 